Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by one of my newer parliamentary colleagues from the 2019 election, Jaime Batiste. He's a former lawyer, former professor. He's also the first Mi'kmaq member of parliament representing Sydney, Victoria. And I've asked Jaime to join me as the chair of our Liberal Indigenous Caucus, and also because we've exchanged notes on economic racism, and I've heard Jaime make really powerful interventions in caucus on the question of UNDRIP. Jaime, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. You are the first Mi'kmaq member of parliament, already the chair of our Liberal Indigenous Caucus. And so obviously these issues matter to you deeply as well. Greg Fergus just asked a question of the commissioner of the RCMP to identify systemic racism that can you provide some examples? And she had a tough time. I imagine you're not going to have such a tough time. One of the things that we, we really have to start off with when we start off our conversation in Canada is that it didn't start 152 years ago. Mi'kmaq people have been living in this area for a record of up to 13,000 years. Our, our country is based on the premise that when, when people came to North America, they signed treaties with nations that were already here saying that this is how we see the country moving forward. And these are our shared treaties, whether you're an indigenous person or whether you're a new immigrant or if your family moved here 300 years ago, the whole foundation of Canada is based on these treaties. And Greg Fergus really has inspired me to start reaching out. And we have in Nova Scotia, a minister, a black MLA named Tony Ince, who I've been talking with for about two weeks. And we're saying that between the provincial liberal governments, between the federal liberal governments, what is the action? Everyone talks about what is the action that we need to take? And we started having this conversation and we're going to have a forum within Nova Scotia. We're not, we don't know the mechanism yet, whether it's going to be Zoom, whether they're going to allow us to do it in person, but really to explore these next steps that we can take. Because there's so many things that we need to do to address racism, to address change. But the biggest thing is, I think, education. My previous job before becoming into politics was the treaty education lead for Nova Scotia. And what I was able to do was go around across Nova Scotia and to talk to judges, talk to RCMPs, talk to the school, change the curriculum and say, we want it to reflect who Indigenous people are. We wanted to have a balanced understanding of, of this moving forward. And they're doing some great work in other places like Saskatchewan and Manitoba. But I always remember the words of an elder there who had gone to a residential school. And I found it so profound when he said, if you want treaty education to succeed, if you want your initiative to succeed, your message has to be about moving forward together. It can't be about resent. It can't be about guilt. It can't be about shame. It's about how do we move forward together in a way that every Canadian can get behind. Every Nova Scotian can get behind and say, we understand your history and we're going to strive to do better. And that's the Canada Day that I believe in. We know that outcomes are unequal today specifically because of the historical racism and discrimination against Indigenous communities. So when we talk about moving forward together, I think let's move forward and improve the situation for the communities that, that have suffered as a result of really cultural genocide, people have been right to say. Education, I think, makes absolute sense. And, and I guess I've been seized with this. I, I can't get out of my head this idea of economic justice and making sure that if we see differential outcomes, it's because of the social determinants. And if we want to address the social determinants, education is a key part of that. But also yeah. basic income supports to make sure people don't live in poverty has to be a significant part of that as well. And I think you're on the right track. And one of the things that I, I, I've had a lot of different jobs in my life. I was a professor at Cape Breton University. 
You know, I worked for for the Mi'kmaq in terms of identifying citizenship. And one of the things that in my citizenship research, you know, when I research, because they always talk about indigeneity in terms of blood. You know, are you half Mi'kmaq? Are you full? You know, this is something that I've gotten my whole life because of my pale complexion. And they always, you know, that's always a question to me. You know, what percentage of you is is indigenous? Well, my my father is a, a Chickasaw Indian from Oklahoma, who met my mother, who's a full, full-blooded Mi'kmaq, as, as you would call it. They actually met at Harvard University. My mom was doing her master's in education. My father was doing a law program. So my mom asked. Uh, she went to the Native Center in Harvard and said, "I'm looking for a tutor for this course called Education Law." And that, and lo and behold, they found my father. And so six years later, I, I was born, and, but I live right now, and I've lived most of my life in a Mi'kmaq community called Eskasoni, which has 5,000 members. But one of the things I, I, you know, during that citizenship research that I want to go back to is that race is a cultural phenomenon. It's not biological. There's nothing within our blood or in our DNA that has any relevance towards race. And one of the problematic things is mitochondria DNA, it only picks up your mother's 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 genetics. So they're discounting. If you're looking at your great-grandfather, the only thing that they're looking at is your mother's 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 mother. It doesn't take into consideration that. So it's just such a flawed system. And the reason I bring that up is because it makes it clear that as humans, we're 99.9% the same. And the only difference is the opportunities that were given growing up. Now, as a Mi'kmaq person, I can be one of the only Mi'kmaq persons who say, I understand and enjoy white privilege because I have blonde hair, green eyes, pale complexion. And in my community, you know, growing up, that wasn't a good thing. You know, they, you get teased, <laughs> called an albino, you got called a cup powder cast, you know, all of these <laughs> things. And But then when I was older, I realized that I wasn't getting the same treatment as my friends who'd walk into a restaurant or walk into a, a store and people would have their eyes on them or in hotels when we used to play hockey tournaments. But I really never saw it as an obstacle until I wanted to run for the Liberal Party. And, you know, I'd go around asking some people for support. And I had one gentleman tell me very frankly, you know, I like you. I think you're a smart person. I just don't think Sydney's progressive enough to vote in a native person. Wow. I said, you know what? I thank you for your honesty on there. But I'm going to bust my ass to prove you wrong. And I, and I have. But it's one of these things that where do we go from here? And that's the question. Like, I, And that's where the more MPs are having this conversation, the more we're doing it. And the thing is, let's have it in a safe space. I think there are two important approaches where one is focused on education for the sake of people who are growing up and we want to ensure that whatever household they're growing up in and whatever the the views of parents or grandparents, we're teaching people about equality and dignity and that the different colors of our skin, the different religious beliefs that people might have, the, the different cultural backgrounds that are not reasons to to treat people differently. Respect and equality fundamentally is what it comes down to. And then the other element is a matter of justice to ensure that we rectify past wrongs and that idea that you've identified of moving forward together. So we move forward together by educating one another, but we also move forward together by ensuring that people do have the same kinds of opportunities going forward. And that requires economic justice. It requires 
greater self-government. There's the conversation we're having about UNDRIP. And I hope we see legislation tabled in the fall. If you've made some interesting comments in caucus, given what is your dad's history with the negotiations? I want to get back to the economic and, and accommodation pieces towards where racism, where we can go in this country. But if for, for UNDRIP, my history with that is my father uh, began working for the Mi'kmaq Nation back in early 1980s. And at that time, they were trying to have the constitutional talks. And as part of that, they didn't allow Mi'kmaq to have their own seat. They had the Assembly of First Nations at the time at the table. And, and the Mi'kmaq leadership said, well, we didn't give them the right to, to discuss our rights on our behalf. And so they went to the United Nations and said that Canada has and Canada continues to violate our treaties and not have these discussions with us. So my father, as well as his one of his best friends from Harvard, represented the Mi'kmaq for free at the United Nations and went to one of the the political covenants and said to the committee is that Canada has violated our right as peoples to self-determination. So after an eight-year back and forth between Canada gets to write their side, it's not like a court system. It's like Canada gets to respond to their claim. They got to respond to Canada's claim. And after eight years, the group that was listening to the conversation said, we understand what you're saying, that the Mi'kmaq do have this right to self-determination. We don't have a mechanism within this covenant to change that. We don't have the authority to do something about that. So after that, my father, as well as Russell Barsh, uh, he was one of the kind of the founders of a political forum in uh, United Nations for Indigenous People. They started writing the first clause of, of what they would, would now be UNDRIP saying, all peoples have the right to self-determination. Because one of the arguments that was used in the 1990s, 1990s, not 1890s, is that Indigenous people weren't peoples according to the laws of United Nations. What UNDRIP was meant to do was give indigenous peoples globally the same rights as ever other human beings. Because in South America, which really pushed against UNDRIP, these were people who said that indigenous people were pagans and heathens and couldn't have the same rights as everyone else. And so this was really part of a global kind of movement to say that indigenous people should enjoy the same rights as everyone else. And that's the fundamental basis for UNDRIP. For 30 years of consultation done globally through through Indigenous people all across Canada, and now we have the opportunity as a government to say that even though we were one of the four countries that objected to the UNDRIP, along with United States, Australia, and New Zealand, we have the opportunity to make amends for that by putting that into legislation. I really believed our prime minister in September of 2017 went to the United Nations, and he said all of these things that the Mi'kmaq had been saying for years in these communications to the United Nations, basically said it's absolutely true that we've done all of these horrific things to indigenous people, but now it's our time to move ahead. And that's the moment where our prime minister made a fan of my family saying that everything that we had said and fought for 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 20 years was was active. We, we have different levels of consultation required depending upon the seriousness of the imposition upon indigenous communities according to existing law and do you think that UNDRIP will move the needle to a stronger degree of, of consultation and consent? Or do you think that this will in some ways simply codify the case law that we've seen? I think it, it has more bearing within the case law and future case law in terms of what Indigenous communities are asking is, is the same right as any other Canadian. If we were to build a railway through your riding that would displace many communities, those communities would have a right to have a voice. 
in how our government moves forward, whether it's a train, whether it's a pipeline, whether it's anything that's out there that, that the government's moving forward on, that Indigenous people should enjoy the same protections and rights that every other Canadian would enjoy in that situation. In some cases, then, if the project is in the public interest, my home, for example, could be expropriated so long as I'm reasonably compensated. But still, I would have to be engaged. I'd have to be consulted. I would have to ultimately be compensated if we couldn't come to an agreement, but the government still wanted to move forward. Is that the idea? I, I believe so. I, I just, that reasonable compensation piece and consultation piece is is where I think people get too much focus on saying, well, it's a veto. I think it's just the amount of, you want the ability to be able to go to a community whether it's Indigenous or non-Indigenous, and say, here's what we need to happen, here's what the benefits are going to be, and here are how you're going to be reasonably compensated for this. And ensuring there's a legal protection so that the government can't simply foist a level of compensation or t- terms and conditions on a particular community, and the community does not have recourse, that there is a, there's protection in the law for the community to defend their rights in in court. And if you look at the early case law, I don't know if you remember from law school, the St. Catherine's Milling case, it describes as indigenous land ownership as what they call a usufructory right. That means we have the right to enjoy the land, but there's no real ownership of it. And that's problematic in many areas for government to say, well, you don't really own the land. You just get to live there based on the crown, believing that it's fair to allow the indigenous people to roam on their communities. And and I think that's where we need to have more discussion on that. And I think that that's where the UNDRIP is able to take that case law from indigenous people having a mere usage of, of land to actual ownership where they can be reasonably compensated. And you know, the government's still going to move ahead on projects. We still need to get things done. But the biggest thing is to be able to have that conversation on equal footing as every other Canadian. That's 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 the key part. The debate ultimately centers around this. You've discussed it as a veto, but this notion of free prior and informed consent and whether one has to obtain free prior and informed consent or one has to enter into good faith negotiations in order to obtain free prior and informed consent. And even if one can't obtain that consent, if the project is in the public interest and the engagement has been in good faith and there is reasonable compensation on the table, the debate is whether the consent has to have been obtained or sought and compensated for. Yeah. And I think that's where UNDRIP helps case law in a case-by-case situation determine that because you can't make a pan-Indigenous approach to, you know, there are some sites that are more significant than others and some access to water is uh, important things. Access to your community's hunting ground, these have to be reflected. I think that it's it's tough to understand a lot of these concepts, but more and more, there are more Indigenous people going to law school. There are more Indigenous judges out there. And I think that the conversation is being had. And for me personally, when I want to come back to accommodation. One of the things that we had in in Nova Scotia was the Donald Marshall Jr. inquiry, where Donald Marshall spent 11 years in prison for a crime that he didn't commit. And afterwards, they had an inquiry that said that our justice system was just so racist at the time that needed to be changed. And as a part of that, the Dalhousie Law School put aside 
12 spots every single year for Indigenous, Black, and Mi'kmaq people. And I'm one of those people who was given the ability to go to law school because they made room for us. And because of that, you know, I was able to get my law degree and go into academia right away. And now I'm a member of parliament. But if not for that accommodation, by not for given that opportunity, I, I may not be in this seat I am in today. And there are accommodations like the one that you describe where you were given an oppor- a particular opportunity to succeed in a way that, that would not have been afforded to your parents in, at Dalhousie Law School. When it comes to the, the criminal justice numbers or the foster care numbers, so much of that is tied to a lack of opportunity, which is tied to poverty. Do you see this idea of economic justice? I have talked about it in caucus and elsewhere as needing to expand and redesign the serve so it provides really a guaranteed income supplement for seniors, but for all Canadians. I don't know if you support that or, or if you would look to other ways of lifting people up and, and addressing economic justice. I'm I'm very interested in the term of of how we do that. You know, I live in a community that's 75% children in poverty, and uh, we have the welfare system. But what we really want is is create meaningful job and meaningful employment. And I'm trying to figure out where do these people land when it comes to giving people basic income. And how do we ensure that those who need help are getting the help? And if you look at the CERB, I've had chiefs call me from Ontario telling me, you know, Jaime, this is a real challenge for us because you have these drug dealers making people go on the CERB to pay off their debts. And it's making the situation worse. And, you know, I've heard from people up north that say everyone's on this and, you know, we've got to do something about it because it's making the problems around addictions and a little worse with now an influx of money when people didn't have money before. I'd like to see more on the details, but an influx of money into an area that has major social challenges, I don't know yet if I'm convinced that that's the solution. And I'd love to so, love to hear your comments on it, though. Yeah. So there are no doubt people who will take some incoming money and use it in a way that if they have engaged in conduct that is harmful to themselves in and they're and they're dealing with mental health challenges the influx of money may well go to those same ends but if you look to the child poverty rate that you mentioned and you look to something like mm-hmm. the Canada child benefit did you hear the same concerns about the Canada child benefit because the Canada child benefit has helped lift 300,000 kids out of poverty right and so Absolutely. and that is a direct cash transfer into people's bank accounts and we see the lowest poverty rate of, among any demographic in this country is seniors. And why is that? Because the federal government spends $55 billion a year in direct cash transfers through old age security and the guaranteed income supplement. And so do you see the seniors in your community that are filing their income taxes and receiving GIS OAS? Are, are they happy to receive it? I bet they are. And so I, I yeah. think for those who are receiving a CERB-like benefit and using it in a destructive way, I think the answer there is not to remove those funds, but the answer is to ensure that we are addressing those needs and and that destructive behavior through mental health services and social supports. And so I don't want to suggest that a cash transfer is to replace those other important social supports, to replace those employment services, to replace the housing supports. It's got to be complementary. It will go a long way to lifting people out of poverty, which is ultimately going to make a really significant long-term difference. 
Yeah. And I think that the discussion you had around poverty and the one that you chaired, I thought it was a great discussion. I, I look forward to the next one because I think these are the things that we need to uh, start talking about. And But I, I 100% agree with you that, you know, that child care benefit you know, amazing things. And it's continuing to do amazing things. This is something that I'd like to explore further and always explore those ideas. But I just want to make sure that the money's going into people, going into children, going into what they need, going into for, for food security, as opposed to feeding addictions. And, and that's where just coming from the community that I come from is, is a challenge. To that, I, I think one challenge you face with as you layer conditions onto payments is you layer on bureaucracy and you don't always know what is best in comparison to people on the ground. And so food vouchers could be one thing, but if the, per, if the family really needs a particular article of clothing instead or particularly needs a particular prescription drug instead, then we start to make decisions that, that maybe are not the best in a way that the, the household leaders themselves are, are best placed to make those decisions. But I, I think it's really important to recognize challenges. And there, and there will be increased challenges if you increase the inflow of dollars into someone with a substance use disorder. They're going to use it in a way that is probably harmful to their own interests. And we have to find a way of addressing that. And I, I think there are probably other wraparound services and other ways of reforming our drug laws that will ultimately get us there. But I take your point about needing to address these concerns head on as we develop any any sort of long-term social expansion of our social safety net. I got to ask, so you um, go to law school, you're a professor, you run and you become the first Mi'kmaq member of parliament. You immediately take on the role of Liberal Indigenous Caucus Chair. And I personally think you've been very eloquent at the microphone in your caucus interventions. Are there particular issues that you got involved to, to really drive through? And and are they Indigenous issues because you, you took on the Indigenous Caucus Chair or, 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 or other issues? You retire or are unelected at some point in your life and you look back and you say, well, you know what, I did this. What What, what is the thing you want to accomplish in, in Ottawa? My background, you know, I've had 20 years. Of, I was on the Assembly of First Nations National Youth Council as a chair of their organization back when I was 24, 25. I was, I was involved with, uh, with the executive during what I feel was like just the, the greatest moment for growth under Paul Martin that had him, you know, going to Kelowna Accord and settling the residential schools. And I thought that, you know, being a part of that just really always kind of set me as a trajectory of, of Indigenous leadership. And I always wanted to be a part of that. And I always wanted to be a part of the conversation of finding some of the solutions. And if we're ever at a point where I'm a member of parliament, when we pass UNDRIP, that will be a major proud thing for me and my family on that. But also, you know, the Mi'kmaq won back in 1999, a Supreme Court of Canada decision saying they had a right for a moderate livelihood fishery. And in September of 17th, they won that case. And in the first time in the history of the Supreme Court of Canada, they had a clarification that came two months later and saying that, yeah, the Mi'kmaq have a right to commercial fisheries, but it's got some limits to that. And, you know, they, they spent the first five paragraphs, the Supreme Court did, saying that they didn't need to clarify the decision and then spent the remaining 50 paragraphs clarifying the decision. Uh -huh. And so for 20 years, the Mi'kmaq have been negotiating this. And it's it's one of these things that I've, I've, I'd like to see movement on. And I've had many good conversations with chiefs, Minister Jordan 
on this and just trying to get this through. It's kind of odd that a community goes to the Supreme Court of Canada, wins a right, but then has to negotiate that right with the very people who were litigating against them. <laughs> and if you talk about systematic racism, you talk about the inherent problem with, with that. And I'd love to see the Mi'kmaq be able to come to an agreement during this time that ensures that they're able to grow their fisheries, that they're able to add to the economy, that they're able to employ more people, that they're able to raise people out of poverty in these communities. For a non-Indigenous person in Ottawa, I have spent a considerable amount of advocacy early on in the last parliament focused on clean water issues. And then I was part of a caucus working group focused on our child welfare system because I thought that was the gravest injustice that the government was yet to focus their efforts on in a serious way. And then we have seen legislation, we've seen additional funding to address that as well. And I'm now most focused on urban indigenous issues here in the, here in Toronto here in Ontario, we see over 80% of Indigenous people live off-reserve in our municipalities and in our urban centers. And we don't see enough of a focus, I think, in many respects in terms of funding supports and and government attention on our urban Indigenous communities. So I've I've tried to find a way to be an advocate and and support existing social service providers and advocates here in, here in Toronto and beyond. I wonder, though, what your advice would be for whether for a non-Indigenous member of Parliament or just a non-Indigenous Canadian about how we can best support the reconciliation effort. I think it's all about creating awareness uh, of that history and what has led people away from reserves and into urban locations. And and uh, one of the groups that I, I think does some great work is the Friendship Centers. The, the last thing I, I wanted to just touch on, though, you know, you talk about economic racism a bit. And, you know, one of the things that I've, I've been noticing is, is just the media coverage when dollars go to Indigenous programming. I was interested when I was looking at some of the national headlines, you know, Minister Miller get, would get up and say these things. And, and then three weeks later, he would say something. And, and I looked at the headline and it said, more money for Indigenous Services Canada, or, or another $60 million for Indigenous communities. And, I'm, and I never saw that when they were talking about seniors or disabilities or students. <laughs> no one ever said more money for them. I would say part of my drive for you know a guaranteed income supplement kind of program for more Canadians beyond seniors is we see the disproportionate effect of poverty in Indigenous Black communities and, and, and historically discriminated against communities. And so there are negative consequences today for communities because of intentional negative policies throughout our history. But I would say anyone living in poverty, regardless of background, they're a vulnerable population and we should be supporting them and, and lifting them out of poverty. And so the advantage of a program in some respects that isn't focused on one community or another, but is going to address disproportionate effects of those communities is when you say, let's move forward together. It is a very useful way of lifting everyone up regardless of background and, and moving forward together. Yeah. And because no one chooses to be born into poverty. Exactly. And that's exactly. the thing is that, you know, they're, th this isn't their choice. I mean, there may have been mistakes that their parents or grandparents made along the journey, or maybe they just were given a raw deal from the start. But yeah, I, I agree 100% that no child, no matter what background, should not be given support and the opportunities that everyone else gets in, in, in Canada. And that's the biggest thing that I, I will agree with you 100% is that we have to help 
children in poverty. And, you know, that's, that's the, where I, I like where our Canada child benefit is. And I think that we can do better, but I really think that it's the focus is making sure that children growing up have every opportunity that everyone else has. And I know that that, you know, social circumstances at home are never going to be the same around the board, but as long as they're given the access to that opportunity and the ability to enjoy the life that most Canadians enjoy. I think that's important. And I agree with you 100% on that, that we need to do stuff on that. Well, Jaime, I appreciate you taking the time. I got to say, you know, it's been nice in many respects to to see an influx of new members and the passion of new members and and the drive for new members to, to make change. So I'm looking forward to working with you in this parliament as we slowly but surely maybe resume uh, some sense of normalcy in the fall. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And I really appreciate you making time to have this conversation. It's important. And you know, I look forward to seeing you in Ottawa. Sounds good. Thanks, Annie. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Uncommons. Remember to subscribe at uncommons.ca for future episodes. And please do leave a review, hopefully a positive review, but leave a review on whatever platform you happen to listen in on. And I spoke to Jaime originally in and around Canada Day. We didn't get around to posting this episode until later, unfortunately. But I want to leave you with these comments from Jaime about the celebration of Canada, about Canada Day in the context of reconciliation and the historical injustice against Indigenous people. And I know there are some Indigenous people who don't celebrate Canada Day, but I do. I celebrate the country that we live in. I, I think we live in an, an amazing country. And sometimes, you know, it's hard to celebrate the past. I, I believe in the Canada that we live in today, but I also believe in the future of Canada, where we can be. And I think there's no country that has greater wealth of diversity and understanding and neighbors who care for each other. 